0: I've brought this up before, but it continues to be something that, that bears repeating, putting before us. In the history of the church, body of Christ, in the effort, and it's a good one, to make the gospel easily accessible to others, we have often reduced the good news of Jesus Christ as being all about going to heaven. Many people, both Inside and outside the church have come to perceive that believing in Christ is just about following him into the next life. And as a result of trying to come up with a concise way of expressing the gospel as a result of unintended consequence, this life, here and now, becomes seemingly nothing more than an incidental focus. Now I want to be clear, as I always am when I bring this up, that the reality and assurance of heaven, thanks to Jesus. Is important. And yet, as we continue in our focus for this sermon series on the greatest sermon that Jesus ever preached, what we know as the, God, as the Sermon on the Mount, what's interesting to me in this greatest sermon that Jesus ever delivered, not once does Jesus ask, where will you spend eternity after you die? No. As we've seen so far and we will continue to see, Jesus's repeated message Jesus, in fact, in this sermon will later teach us to pray not about life in heaven, but life on earth as it is in heaven. For the poor in spirit, the grieving, the starving, and the oppressed, they are not waiting for blessings that will be in heaven. No, two weeks ago we heard Jesus announce for them and for us all that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And as we saw those two weeks ago when we started this series, Jesus begins this sermon by declaring life in the kingdom is a blessed life, a life made possible, a life lived by the grace of God. Grace is given and grace changes things. It transforms us now. Jesus tells us, as we looked at last week, we are salt and light. We are salt and light not when we get to heaven. Salt and light our identity and our calling on the earth, in the world, now. As we exist, as we looked at last week, out of the grace we have been given through the testimony of our lives, Christ changes and transforms the world through our words and deeds. Now, here's the thing. And if you haven't already, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 so we can get dig into it in just a second. But as we continue on in this sermon, here's the thing. In beginning where he does... With the Beatitudes, as we looked at two weeks ago, and as Jesus unfolds what is really a revolutionary teaching, his listeners, in all their awe and wonder, are probably starting to have some questions. You see, if if you don't catch this, what Matthew wants you to understand as he sets up this sermon is that this is is seemingly like something that's come before. Jesus goes on a mountainside and begins to give the greatest sermon ever, ever ever taught, well, Moses once delivered the rules of life according to God on a mountain too. And so as Jesus continues to teach, the question that must be raised in some, in some listeners' minds is, how does what Jesus is teaching here reveal, line up with what's come before? And rather than give you the answer, Let's hear the answer as Jesus himself addresses this question. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 5 starting in verse 17. I invite you to hear the word of the Lord. Matthew writes, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches the others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Keep those Bibles open, because we've only read part of our full scripture for today, and I'm going to reference back to what comes next. But for right now, let me tell you, three things we're going to try to do today. First, we are going to answer the question, what's going on here? Um, I want you to appreciate the tension that exists at this part in the sermon for many, many people. And I hopefully I'm gonna resolve that tension for you. That's number one. Number two, we are going to, in light of that resolution, talk about how does it work? Meaning, what is the relationship between the law and grace, the grace that God gives. And then thirdly, finally, I want us to talk about what does this look like, meaning given what Jesus gives us here, how does this teach us what generous living looks like, which has been sort of the focal point of this entire sermon. So let's begin first by what's going on here. I want you to see the tension that exists here. By way of background, for those listening to Jesus here, we need to understand the law was sacred. For most Jews, the Torah, another word for the law, was the definitive revelation of God. And therefore, as the definitive revelation of God, it had saving value. Abiding by the commandments. Walking, if you will, in the way of the Lord was the key to being accepted and blessed by God. Now, with that in mind... Fast forwarding a little bit beyond this sermon, after Jesus preaches this message, I want you to acknowledge something that you probably remember, but I want to keep it in your mind right now. Later on, Jesus will be perceived by many as a lawbreaker, right? He'll be perceived by many as a lawbreaker. For example, Jesus will be accused of not observing the Sabbath properly. Jesus will appear to many to ignore the rules about fasting and ceremonial cleansing. And probably the biggest one of all that Jesus will be publicly called out on is Jesus will be questioned for breaking bread with, for being in relationship, associating with tax collectors and sinners. But before all that, as Jesus starts this sermon as Jesus begins by pronouncing nine times God's grace upon those who otherwise would be thought to be outside of the Lord's benevolence, people are probably starting to wonder, is Jesus setting aside the law? Is Jesus setting aside the 10 Commandments, the standards the Lord set for being his people? And as you heard, Jesus doesn't wait long to answer this unspoken question. Jesus says, I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. In other words, our Father's intentions for how we are to live before him and in relationship with each other have not changed and will be realized. In fact, if you have it open, Jesus cautions us against setting aside any of the commandments. They're a package deal. It's all or nothing. Jesus insists anything less is to lessen one's impact for the kingdom, whereas exercising the whole of the law reflects the greatness of the kingdom. Now, again, some more context, which becomes even more of an issue later. But as this is being preached by Jesus, the context is that some, and Jesus actually identifies them as he talks here, some, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law specifically, tried to be even more rigorous in their application of the law. They tried to be even more rigorous by breaking down each of the Ten Commandments into specific case scenarios. But if you, again, have those Bibles open, Jesus pushes further. He pushes, even says, for an even better righteousness than all their jot and titling. And by way, and this is the part we haven't read that I want you to look at as I talk about it, by way of some pointed illustrations, Jesus goes on to reveal the deeper challenge what true precision looks like when it comes to the Torah, to the law. And he does this, you'll see there, by way of a very common rabbinical formula. Jesus will start by saying, you have heard it said. And then as we go here and look at this, Jesus will start with a very common rabbinical formula, you have heard it said, but then he will proceed to stand traditional understanding and conventional wisdom on its head as he says, but I tell you. And... (laughs) Do you notice, if you have that open, that Jesus doesn't ease into the conversation either? I mean, he doesn't throw up a softball, right? I mean, of all the Ten Commandments, he doesn't throw up a softball. What is the most egregious violation of the law we can think of? Murder. Thou shalt not kill. Now, imagine yourself in that crowd as Jesus begins to talk about that, as you think about God's rules for life. Think about it right now. Thou shalt not kill. Most of us, I'm assuming, looking around the room, we're all able to pat ourselves on the back that we are not guilty of committing homicide. Not a problem. Thou shalt not kill. Not a problem. Yet Jesus says right out of the gate, we stand convicted, each and every one of us, all of us, we stand convicted of murder every time we hold another person in contempt. There's that expression that Jesus has here when you say raka to your neighbor. Raka is a Hebrew word that basically implies contempt. It basically implies condemning someone to hell. Damning them. Jesus says we are guilty of murder every time we hold another person in contempt. It's not enough to just avoid physical killing. We must be aware of being guilty of what we call character assassination, of destroying the dignity and reputation of another person through insults, gossip, what we call backstabbing even. The deeper challenge Jesus reveals is not ultimately murder, The deeper challenge is the anger, the unforgiveness, the bitterness of vengeance that will kill us long before we take out another person. It is the bitterness, the unforgiveness, the anger that denies us the reconciliation we need as much as they do. But Jesus presses on. The law, Jesus affirms, condemns adulterous behavior. And again, most of us will probably pat ourselves on the back and saying we've never crossed the line of having a physical affair. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Jesus insists the betrayal of infidelity starts long before we do anything like that as soon as we indulge in that lustful thought or forbidden desire, the moment we make our relationship with another person or something else, our work, sports, the internet, shopping, whatever, the moment we make our relationship with someone or something else greater than our commitment to our spouse, we have broken the covenant of marriage. The deeper challenge Jesus reveals is not ultimately adultery, but the resentment, the envy, and the object, objectification that drives us to treat each other as a means to our own ends. The moment another person, whether it's our spouse or our lover, becomes nothing more than the object of our own pleasure and satisfaction, we have not only divorced ourselves from that person, we have divorced ourselves from the dignity of our common humanity. Jesus doesn't stop here. I mean, there's almost a point where you f- we feel like someone's going to go, can we have a timeout? Can we just stop? Jesus doesn't stop here. He argues as you have it in front of you. The fullness of the law, we want to talk about the fullness of the law. The fullness of the law hits even closer to home. Jesus says it's as near as our own bodies. He, he says rather than allow our eyes and our hands to be slaves to their appetites and addictions, Jesus advises us to cut them off. He isn't being literal here as much as he's revealing the fulfillment of the law is about valuing our bodies rather than degrading them. Valuing our bodies enough to learn to discipline and direct them into life-giving ways of being. If you pay attention and you're still there looking at it in your Bible, go down a little bit further and Jesus even extends this admonition to how we use our mouths Background, the purpose behind the law about oaths. That's what I'm talking about when Jesus talks about taking an oath. The purpose behind the law about oaths was to help people become more truthful. Can I let that sink in for a second? Do you hear that? The purpose behind the law about oaths was to help people become more truthful. Do you appreciate the irony of that statement? Because Jesus does. Jesus, what he does here is pointing out the silliness of taking an oath before God. It's as if Jesus says, here's an idea. Instead of all that manipulative vowing and promise-making, how about this? Be a person of integrity. Let your yes or your no speak for itself. Instead of avoiding the truth, making excuses, or justifying oneself according to the letter of the law, stand by your word. Stand by the word of God. And you see what Jesus is again doing here is revealing the deeper challenge of righteousness is not as much doing the right things or making the right choices as it is living in right relationship with God and with others. So I've been taking this apart for you and I don't know if you see the tension so I'm gonna spell it out for you in case you've missed it along the way. Here's the tension. On the one hand, right, Jesus affirms the law matters. The blessings, the grace of the kingdom do not negate the standards and practices of living the kingdom life. The purpose of the law, to guide the people, in us, in loving the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves is not set aside. Jesus declares the law must be fulfilled to the glory of God. But on the other hand, as Jesus lays it out, the fulfillment of the law The embodiment of those standards and practices, the truth, the way, and the life of the kingdom is beyond us, beyond us. We cannot, in our own strength, by putting our minds to it, our hearts into it, or even betting our souls on it, we cannot, we do not live up to or out of the will of God, again the most concerted effort of the pharisees and jesus will more explicitly bring this out later but the most concerted effort of the pharisees and the teachers of the law didn't get them closer to the lord such efforts actually pulled them farther away from god think about this the best and brightest the best and brightest of the law in equating righteousness with outward observance may have better defined the letter of the law But along the way, they lost the spirit of the law. The spirit behind the law. The spirit of God who is love both externally and internally. When Jesus is preaching this sermon, God's rules for life had become a matter of rote statutory compliance. In other words, the law had become an end unto itself. Where people were so focused on satisfying the minimum requirements of God... They weren't actually engaging in relationship with God. Does that seem so far removed from our own context? The law had become such a matter of rote statutory compliance that everyone was more concerned about checking the box for themselves. Am I good with God? Instead of checking to ensure the well-being of their neighbor. Do we seem distant from that or closer to it? I think we're closer to it. I think we still struggle with this tension because even today, there are many who read this sermon, the greatest sermon Jesus ever preached, they read this sermon as a series of benchmarks that need to be achieved so one can go to heaven later. Now I know all of you gut level reaction have been taught, you've been well trained to go that's not true, we live by grace alone. Let me give you the subtlety of what I'm talking about here. On the one hand, we say we live by grace alone, we are saved by grace, and then we go on to say out of the other side of our mouths, but this is how we live in response to grace. Do you catch that? Do you catch what I just did there? We're saved by grace, but this is how we live in response to grace. And what I'm suggesting, how I'm resolving this tension for you, is that, beloved, you might have heard or you might hear Jesus say that fulfilling the law is about our response to grace. But I tell you, Jesus is saying we can only fulfill the law by the grace of God, meaning not out of response to the grace of God, but by the grace of God that is continually given to us by God in Christ. It's not a separation. It's a link. Our ability to be the people we have been created to be, to live before God and with each other as the Lord intended, is purely the gift of grace. Not just a deposit, an ongoing connection. Long ago, way before, long before Jesus preached this sermon, we might remember the prophet Jeremiah. And through the prophet Jeremiah, God promised this. Do you remember? God said, This is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day. I will put my instructions deep within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Do you hear us doing anything in that? Do you hear anything about us doing anything? Nope, God is doing everything and continues to do it. The the, the connection here with what God promised through Jeremiah and what Jesus is announcing is that the law is only complete. This is what I think Jesus is trying to get us to get. The law is only complete when it is written on our hearts. It can only give us life. It can only bring people together when it is carved into the very core of our being. And we can't do that. Only Jesus can. It is Jesus alone who through his life of perfect obedience, through his sacrificial death on the cross, through his complete victory through the resurrection, it is Jesus alone who moves the law from the realm of the letter to the realm of the heart. And that is why Jesus calls us as his disciples not to follow my law, but to follow me. Imitate me. Walk in the light which comes from me. The Apostle Paul, much, much later in the New Testament, puts it another way. When he writes, the righteousness given by the law, by the way, catch that. Righteousness is given by the law. The righteousness given by the law does not bring salvation. The righteousness given by the law, Paul writes, brings faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus. So, giving you this tension, hopefully resolving it. How does this all work? How does this work in light of this understanding of what's going on here? It begins, and I'm gonna be redundant throughout this series, always in the same place, it begins with grace. It begins as grace takes hold through a change of heart. One of the things that indirectly what Jesus is teaching us here, revealing to us, is sin doesn't just happen to us. Sin doesn't just happen to us. Uh, so, you know, we don't all of a sudden say, oh, I, so I don't know what happened. I just committed murder. I, I don't know what I happened. I just, I just committed adultery. I don't know. Sin doesn't just happen to us. Sin, Jesus is revealing, begins as a posture, a tiny seed in our heart that slowly grows. And unless it is uprooted by God's grace, sin grows like a weed and chokes the vine and all its fruit. The physicality of sin that we're accustomed to seeing and calling out, sinful actions are the ultimate consequence, Jesus wants us to understand, of what begins within a person. Hence, Jesus points, for example, beneath the surface of murder to the selfish anger that broods, that nurses a grudge, that keeps wrath warm, that refuses to die until it kills the other person, spiritually or physically. What's the antidote? The antidote to our envy, our contempt, our rage, Jesus says, is the mercy, compassion, and forgiveness of God extended through him. Out of such grace, the law, in other words, is fulfilled first in us as we are shaped by the love of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why Pentecost is so important. It's through the indwelling of the Spirit that we are encouraged, convicted, and empowered and, and, and that encouragement, conviction, and empowerment comes through the word. It comes through the sacrament. It comes through prayer. It comes through worshiping together. That is how God works his grace upon us and in us. And as we, as God gives us the grace to love as he loves, as God give, gives us the, the grace to forgive as he forgives, to think as he thinks, to overcome evil with good, there is a profound shift in us. We act no longer out of mechanical observance or dutiful obligation. We don't act out of obedience over love. Our obedience is the obedience that naturally flows from love. We embrace the rule of love because the law is already written on our hearts because God is our Father. We aren't trying to be good to go to heaven later please hear that? We aren't trying to be good to go to heaven later. We are so overwhelmed. We are so empowered by the goodness of God. We can't wait for heaven to come later. Divine forgiveness, amazing grace, and unconditional love outwardly flow on earth as it is in heaven through our tangible acts of compassion and service. put this together, what I'm trying to say to you this morning that I think Jesus is teaching us is generous living, our focus here. Generous living is not so much a matter of keeping the law of God as it is living out of the grace of God. In other words, for today, what Jesus is giving us, generous living begins with a generous attitude. A generous attitude. Beloved, what This is a question I want you to chew on, not just in these few moments, but maybe this week. What is your orientation towards your heavenly father? What is your orientation, your attitude towards your heavenly father? Are you abiding, sitting in, dwelling in? That's what abide means. Parking. Are you parking in the reality of the Lord's generous attitude towards us? Or are you functionally still living as a slave before God? Are you living as a slave before God, or are you living as a child of our Father? Because there's a profound difference between the two postures. You see, slaves and servants follow rules. They look for loopholes and exceptions to the rules. Children just look to reflect the family likeness. They just want to be like Dad. Jesus was very intentional much, much later on about saying to the disciples, and that extends to us, I do not call you servants. I call you friends. We are the children of God. What is your orientation toward our Heavenly Father? Because this generous attitude that God seeks to rise up within us begins there. It is because of the generosity of God's attitude toward us in Christ, not holding our sins against us, bringing healing to the pain and anguish in our lives, opening our eyes because we're all deaf, deaf, blind, and dumb, opening our eyes to the fullness of the opportunity, the needs of the world and the people around us. It's because of the generosity of God's attitude toward us in Christ that we have something, anything to offer I've asked you to think about your default orientation to our Heavenly Father, but the second question goes with it. What is our default orientation toward other people? Is your posture toward a stranger, someone you just met, someone you barely know, is your posture toward those people, those persons, informed by the prompting of the spirit or the preconceptions of your mind? The prompting of the spirit or the preconceptions of your mind? Are you, out of the unconditional abundance of God's love for you, experiencing the tremendous freedom, the freedom that we are given to be generous in our attitude toward others? We are free, beloved, by grace to love others as God has loves us. We are free by grace not to return evil for evil, but to show kindness and compassion even to those who may be our enemy. We are free by the grace of God to see the beauty in another person without lusting after them, to feel indignation toward another person because of wrongs. And there's nothing wrong with indignation. But we are free by the grace of God to not resort to insults and accusations out of our pain. We are free by the grace of God to forgive even when the forgiveness should be the other person's to give. We are free by the grace of God to simply speak the truth. To let our yes mean yes and our no mean no without trying to put some protective spin on what we say. Out of this freedom are we by the grace of God approaching each person. What I've even asked you just to think about in the last 24 hours, all the different people you've encountered. Are we, by the grace of God, approaching each person as an individual, as a child of God, fearfully and wonderfully made? Or, and I'm guilty of this too, are we still, out of the wisdom of the world, old habits that die hard, assessing people according to long-established stereotypes and deep prejudices? This is a timely question, because it seems like it's bubbling to the surface yet again within our own nation, let alone our world. We are struggling with racial tension. We are struggling with tension between genders. And I'm gonna be honest with you, and it, it brings me to my knees, We're responding, I don't hear people responding out of the prompting of the spirit in the midst of the tension and the uncomfortableness of what we feel. I see people responding out of exactly what I said, out of long established stereotypes and deep prejudices. We're paying lip service to Jesus, but we're not actually seeing Jesus in each other. Beloved, you need to hear this this morning. I need to hear this this morning. We are trying to legislate away stereotypes and prejudices do you see that we think that if we're more politically correct we think that if we pass laws that suddenly we'll get rid of our stereotypes and our prejudices do you hear jesus this morning the law will not save us all we will do on both sides wherever you stand on this we whether whatever side of the law you want to be all we're going to do is we're going to take those stereotypes and those prejudices and we're going to put them buried they're not going to go away They're not going to go away unless we stop living out of our own strength and we start surrendering and living out of the grace of God. Beloved, rules cannot make us live generously. Rules cannot make us live generously. Rules can only force us to live out of obligation. Graciousness, Jesus is declaring, comes not from an external law. It flows out of an internal orientation. Generous attitudes emerge from the depths of our awareness and our immersion in the, in the height and width of God's great love for us. Are you immersed in the love that God has for you, that God has for each and every person that he has fearfully and wonderfully made? And all the isms that we're concerned about, I think in the church we need to be concerned about a different one. Gracism. Gracism is not my word, but I, I, I'm gonna, I've, I've borrowed it. We have to be weary in the church of practicing gracism. What's gracism? Here it is. Gracism is the double standard of judgment towards others, but grace for oneself. That's gracism. I love the grace of God. Yes, I am forgiven. I am covered by the grace of God. You, on the other hand, are going to hell. <laughs> That's gracism. You, on the other hand, I don't know if grace is gonna be enough. Gracism is embracing the generosity of God's attitude toward us, but being stingy in our approach towards others. And Jesus clearly states elsewhere, the generous attitude of kingdom living is not mercy for me and condemnation for them. The generous attitude of kingdom living Jesus declares is the consistent standard of doing unto others as we would have done unto us of loving our neighbor as ourselves. So every week I've tried, I said I want to give you some example of what does this look like in practice. And I got to confess to you that coming up to this sermon I was really been praying and struggling because I really had a hard time of how could I try to reflect to you what I think is going on here, what I think this is about, these, this generous attitude. And then God Dropped a testimony in my lap yesterday. And I have permission to share it. And it is from one of our own in our community. He's here right now. He's right over there. John Galley. John Galley shared a a story with me. And I want to give a little context to this. John Galley. And it really touched me just really wrestling with last week as we talked about generous testimony. How do we share the testimony of our lives? Really trying to be attentive to praying about what God is saying to him in the context of where he lives and works. And if you don't know John, he's one of our elders. John is a pilot. And here's how the story goes. John was co-piloting with another guy a little while back. And near the end of their flight together, their work together. I mean, probably at the worst possible moment, they got into sort of more of a deeper conversation. And they briefly exchanged views about faith. And in the context of that conversation, this guy was very upfront that he didn't believe in God, he believed in science. That he believed this life is all there is. And John, in the midst of a very brief window of opportunity, shared a different point of view. And they parted amicably. But this is what I appreciate about John's testimony. He was very honest in his reflection that he walked away very, very frustrated. It was very, very difficult. And, and it's so honest because it's true, right? We, 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 when we talk to someone else, we want them to think the way that we do, right? We want them to believe the same way we do. When they don't, it's frustrating, right? It's like this thing between us. It's awkward. It's like, how do we work around that? And John openly confessed, man, there's this thing out there, and I'm probably going to see this guy again. And I, how am I going to deal with that? I mean, what, how am I going to have that conversation? How, how am I going to engage that? I mean, it's just going to be awkward. And, I don't know. and, and here's the part that I love in G- when John shared this with me. John could have written this guy off. He could have dismissed him, forgot about him, found a way to work around him, you know, sort of like dodge and dash in the midst of being in, in the same space with him. But John shared with me, and it was, again, God's grace, then, in the midst of all his worry, which we, I can relate to, all his trying to figure it all out, he started to be convicted on his heart. It was the grace of God, and he 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 stopped all of what he was doing and just submitted to the prompting of the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit began to change his attitude about this man. John, instead of worrying about what would happen, what he would do next responded to the simple prompting of the Spirit to pray for this man. Just pray for him. And he had been daily. Just pray for him. And sure enough, as John expected, they were scheduled to fly together again. And in fact, they were scheduled to fly, as I got to understand it, two six-hour flights back-to-back. That's 12 hours in a cockpit. Just the two of them. And John, even in the midst of praying, was like, what am I gonna, do? that's like half a day, man. What's that gonna be like? What am I gonna say? That's, uh, uh, it's gonna be awkward. And got, got caught up again. What if it comes up? What can I say? What could I say? What, he got caught up in the logistics, but once again, John was prompted and he submitted to not focusing on the logistics, but to focus instead on his attitude toward that man. And in those 12 hours, again, that's a lot of time, he loved him. He wanted to listen to him. He didn't just listen to him, he wanted to listen to him. He sought to know him better in the way John describes it, several thousand feet in elevation among the stars. They talked, both men shared. And let me just cut to the chase right here. There was no great conversion experience. That's what we want, right? There was no great conversion experience and I will add this, yet. But here's what's significant to me. In that 12 hours, through the generosity of John's attitude toward that man, there was a powerful breakthrough. You see, in those 12 hours, that man shared with John that previously, another person who was a Christian had gotten into conversation with him. And when this man had shared his beliefs, what he didn't believe, this man very directly, very explicitly said, Well, you're going to hell. You're done. You know, so you don't have, if you don't believe in anything else, that's good because there ain't going to be anything else for you. I, I, I know there's so much more there, but I think observing from afar, I think it's safe to say that person who talked to the same person John was talking to didn't listen. He wasn't seeking to know him. He just judged him. He just rejected him. And I, I, I'm going to say this, that's not a nice attitude it's not, a grace, it's not a grace-filled response. I would go farther to say it's not very generous. And here's the thing, and I'm, I'm putting this together, but as John shared with me, my sense is what John reflected, what this man reflected back to John is through that encounter, through this person's treatment of him, he perceived God's rejection of him. Do you understand? Do you understand how significant our attitude is? How it was equated of, well, if there is a God, this must be God's attitude towards me. And what he shared is in that 12 hours, and even the little conversation before that led to the 12 hours, he shared, he didn't have a conversion experience, but John's willingness to listen, John's willingness to share, John's willingness to embrace him, even though they didn't believe the same things, their beliefs were diametrically opposed, this man suddenly perceived if there is a God that God might be different in his orientation to him. I'll put it this way. Whether he could put it in these words or not, this man through John experienced God's grace. He began to experience, whether he acknowledges it or not, Jesus' acceptance of him, his pursuit of him. That's what it's about. Are we demonstrating a generous attitude toward others? Or are we harboring, for whatever reason, anger or contempt toward them? Are we reflecting the grace of Christ, the fulfillment, the spirit of the law? Or are we reflecting, beloved, the condemnation, the judgment of the letter of the law? I made a statement to you last week, and actually in the, when John shared me, he came back to it. We don't save anybody. In the generosity of our testimony, we are called to be witnesses. Jesus saves, we don't. And if that is true, and I believe that it is, then the opposite is also true. If we don't save anybody, then we don't judge anybody. And I know that that's not gonna sound right, but we don't judge anybody. Jesus saves, Jesus judges. Go to scripture, he makes it clear. We don't, we are called in both situations to simply be witnesses of what we know and who we know. It is when we are preoccupied with saving or preoccupied with judging that we are no longer representing God, we are representing ourselves. And no generosity is possible because we don't have any generosity to give on our own. We're poor. We're bankrupt. A generous attitude, just some things maybe you to think about to take away from the story testimony we heard. A generous attitude starts with prayer for another person. For all the different people you encounter in a given day, can you pray for them in that moment? Not out loud, in your own heart. Generous attitude begins just by the willingness to pray for another person, a group of people that you encounter. A generous attitude embraces a stranger, even an enemy with love, with a willingness to listen. Do you have in the various people you encounter a willingness to listen, or is that overridden by your desire to be heard? Are you willing to listen? Do you truly have a sincere desire to know another person? To stop and actually get to know them? And are you willing by the grace of God To accept them for who they are. And you need to hear this. We need to hear this. Accepting another person for who they are doesn't mean that we're saying they're fine just the way they are. We're accepting them in the midst of all of their garbage, all of their brokenness, just like ours, that they are nonetheless, despite it all, a fearfully and wonderfully made child of God who has been redeemed by the grace and love of Jesus Christ. A generous attitude, beloved, does not condemn or judge another person. A generous attitude offers encouragement and the witness to know Jesus, to experience Christ. I like to think of John's story, and I didn't say this to him, but I'm going to say it to him now. That man, whether he realized it or not, began not just to get to know John better, he began to get to know Christ better. That's, that's the overwhelming, it's blessing right that's the that's the treasure in us jars of clay that we get to become our hearts Jesus says have been captured by grace and they have been inscribed with the law of love beloved therefore let us live generously out of Christ's open-handedness toward us in the openness of our hearts and minds toward others let us together trust in God's goodness relying on his grace toward us so that our attitude may become like Jesus who, in very nature being God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Beloved, out of the radical generosity of our Father, may we do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, may we value others above ourselves, not looking to our own interests, but to the interests of others. These are not my words, they're Paul's. Paul saying, Live generously. So, beloved, let us live generously embracing and treating each person, each and every person, as a child of God, just like we are. Amen.